I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why, presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Welcome, this is the first of our summer writing project workshop sessions. Uh, tonight's, tonight, today's panel is writing, uh, finding your voice. So I'm gonna discuss with these phenomenal writers a little bit about voice and style. Um, the summer writing project uh, throughout the month of July, I'm gonna do a little reading here, so if I sound informal, it's because it's written that way. Um, throughout the month of July, uh, during the summer writing project, 1888 and Juke Pop present a series of free educational essays, lectures, and podcast episodes produced for the community and available to support our top 25 with advancing stories. Uh, my name is John Barrett Ingalls. I host the How the Why podcast. Before we get started, we'll say a few thank yous, first of all, to the city of Orange for helping us host all of the wonderful events we're gonna be doing this summer. And uh, specifically for the Orange Public Library and History Center, who has done so much to help uh, get this day going and bringing all these wonderful people in. Uh, also, thank you to our panel. Uh, we have uh, Yishun Lai, uh, William M. Brandon III, and Rachel Housel Hall. We have the name panel. I'm John Barrett Ingalls. So <laughs> if uh, you don't have more than one name, uh, then or two names, I guess. Yeah. Well, you, you need three to assassinate a prominent uh, individual, yes. right? All yeah. three of us, I think, would be uh, up to that mm -hmm. task. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about our panelists here. Again, reading. So... Uh, we will start with Yishun down at the end. Yishun is an editor and writing coach. Her novel, Not a Self-Help Book, The Misadventures of Marty Wu, is published by Shade Mountain Press. Just came out earlier this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, she is the nonfiction mm -hmm. editor of the Tahoma Literary Review. Uh, next to her is William M. Brandon III. <laughs> it's contractually required that you say the entire I, thing. Of course, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> This is Frederick John Barrett Ingalls, so I know. <laughs> uh, William's a voracious reader and an unrepentant scribe. The commingling of these pleasures forged a path that led to writing and editing for numerous publications and journals, including The Rumpus. In 2015, he became the managing editor for 1888. He's also the author of Silence, which all of the books are going to be available off to the side after the panel if you'd like to take a look. Um, and then we have Rachel Housel Hall. Uh, she's the author of A Quiet Storm, uh, The View From Here, No One Knows You're Here, and the wonderful detective series of uh, Lou Norton, uh, Louise Norton. Uh, the, the latest, remind me again, well, the latest, I have it here, Trail of Echoes was just released a couple months ago as well. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so three books all about the wonderful detective Eloise Norton. 
Uh, she serves on the board of directors for the Mystery Writers of America and has participated as a mentor in the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, Writer to Writer Program. A lot of writing. Yes, that's what we do. Ride, ride, ride. So we ride. are <laughs> going to be talking about voice and style. Now, um, with your history of writing, with the, the, you know, from the first moments of putting a pen to paper to get a story out there, at what point did you discover that you had a specific voice or that there was something that it wasn't just about the story, it was about the way that you told the story? Um, and we'll go down and talk about that. We'll start with Rachel. I remember, and I still have it, it was third grade, and our assignment was to write a play. And my play was called Blue Monday. And it was about a third grade girl who, who got up, and everything was going wrong, and she was mopey, 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 and everything was just dark, and oh my lord, and, you know that. And the teacher wrote, this is nice, but it's so sad. And from then on, it's like, I guess that's what I do, because I, I would write you know, essays and they would be, you know, kind of dark and everything. And my teachers would, they beautifully written, but this is very sad. Therefore, I'm going to give you a D. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, oh, 12th grade, I finally got it. And I was kind of, I guess, playing a joke on them. I would flip it and everything was sunny and bright. And I was kind of just poking at them. And they're like, that's better. And A, A plus, A plus. And it's like, I don't want to write this. And that's when it's like, well, if I'm going to write, this is exactly what I want to write. And you know, for a career, you know, not a lot of people you know, understand that and are comfortable with that. But mystery, that's, that's where you get to be strange and, and dark. And dark, yeah. yeah. William? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, mine was a little bit later in life. Uh, in my early 20s, I did what a lot of people end up doing. Uh, I started emulating the people that I thought were excellent writers. Mm. And um, typically that had more to do with plot and, and structure. And then eventually, as I was trying to do that and failing because I <laughs> am not those people, I recognized that. Uh, that what I was doing was different and um, held the same weight in a different way than, than what I uh, read by the people I respected. So I think the voice was already there uh, almost compulsively. And it wasn't until I tried to do something different, mm -hmm. kind of like you know, your teachers were trying to get you to do something different that I realized like, oh no, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. This is what yeah. I sound like in my head mm -hmm. and hopefully in your head too. <laughs> Um, I'm an inveterate navel gazer, so uh, I spend a lot of time listening to myself, but also listening to other people around me. I love conversation and I love dialogue. Um, and uh, also, relatively early on, I remember a teacher saying to me, I was reading this essay and I felt like you were standing in front of me just yammering at me. I thought, okay, yammering. <laughs> okay, that, that kind of works. I, I can adopt that as my voice, right? So, so that's kind of where I discovered I had a voice. But I think in fiction, it's the character that drives the voice more than anything, right? You know, so yeah. you, kind of, you kind of sort of form that, that character, and then that character will drive the voice that eventually comes out. Yeah, although I do remember a few, um, when I was, my, my first book, it was easy, not easy to get published, but it was an easier journey 
after that, it was difficult because I was edging closer and closer to true mystery, to true crime. And a few editors were like, well, you're talking about murder and you're cracking a joke in the next line. And it's like, well, cops, that's what they do. That's a, you talk to anybody who deals with heavy, heavy things, they have to laugh at some things in order to kind of survive. And you know, growing up the way I did and where I did, you kind of think that way too. It's like, yeah, that's pretty scary and bad, but you crack a joke just to make it. But there were editors who just did not appreciate it and were actually a little offended of you know, my voice and how I saw life. And then fortunately, you know, I found an editor who's like, this is, I, I, we like this and we're gonna buy it. And that's what the, the series is. A detective who, you know, yes, she does and investigates murders, but, you know, she can crack a joke the next time. You, should, you, you were saying um, voice is the voice of the character, but is that always true? And, and if that's so, then how much of that is, is your voice? Um, in this first novel, uh, there is a reasonable amount of, of my voice in this, and I think there's a, a certain amount of that in any first novel. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's this sort of need to kind of um, infuse at least a part of the character with your own personality. Um, but you will find that the character starts slipping away from you. Um, when I write short stories, the character starts slipping away from me. Like, um, it may have started with something that you, as the author herself, um, recognize or was interested in writing about. Um, obviously, you're the one who's witnessing the, the little incident that causes you to write a short story or a poem or a play in the first place. But eventually, the character that you choose to write from in terms of point of view is going to develop his or her own um, viewpoint on things. And that's when things start getting a little slippery and kind of cool. Um, because you do eventually, actually, at the very least, end up writing people you want to hang out with, at least. I mean, they're all broken, because it's boring to write about people who aren't broken, okay? Just <laughs> yeah. tip, right? Um, here, here. But, but um, you always end up being interested in the, in the kind of person this character is, you know? So I think there's always a little bit of you in that, in that character. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you also, you end up choosing the tidbits of the conversation to highlight, and, and that ends up being yeah. kind of a personal choice. Um, you strip away what she don't think is necessarily important um, on behalf of the reader. Now, what about stocks? We're talking about voice, but outside of the, the actual dialogue and the voice and the way they talk, what about your style of writing? And, and when, at, how did that develop over time, and how does that continue to grow? And, and how much weight do you put on this is my style, um, and you know, I, I want to try to be careful of using the word voice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think style is a better uh, term to yeah. describe. This is how I write, and I like keeping this as as my 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 uniqueness, the thing that separates me from other people that are writing in mm -hmm. a similar genre. For me, I writing mystery and writing mystery as an Angelino for. I turned to the masters to help me suss out exactly how it was I wanted, to, yes, the dialogue, but also describing the city that I absolutely mm -hmm. love. So I read lots of Chandler and Elmer Leonard and you know these guys who just pat, 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 pat. And then you, know, you turn to Elmer Leonard's rules, it's like cut out the boring part. So mm -hmm. you read your stuff and you read it out loud. Reading out loud helps a lot. 
and you, once I get bored, it's like, well, I'm crossing that out because who cares about that? So learning and, and reading a lot of those people that you admire, that's how, it, you know, that's how I learned how to kind of figure out how, what is it that I want to say and how do I want to say it and how long do I want to keep saying this thing? Right. Yeah. As a side note, we were all talking about doing readings earlier. I think for me, that, that ends up being one of the most traumatizing parts of doing a reading is when I read it out loud, uh, it, there's just, there's a big difference. And I think the, the last time I did a reading, it was in Venice, and I couldn't help myself. I had to joke while I was reading. I'm like, this reads better than, <laughs> than, we say. than it sounds. Yeah, like, well, it was, a, it was kind of a very, like, intense, intimate moment between two people, and I had a smile on my face, and everyone was having a nice day, and it was sunny, and I was like, this is not actually working. <laughs> uh, I need another, uh, an actor with me, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, uh, it's an excellent point, though, reading out loud. Uh, it lets you get outside yourself in a way that is really incredibly difficult when you're being quiet and you're on a typewriter or a laptop and, and you're in this internal world. It's, um, I believe, our responsibility to at least do that, you know, to at least try to take into consideration what it's going to sound like to somebody else, because otherwise, you know, just be Salinger, throw it in a, in a drawer, you yeah. know, and keep it from everybody. Yeah, because yeah. after a while, it's like you just want... Shut up! Just <laughs> shut, why you, just stop talking. And and if I'm saying that internally, I'm sure the reader's like, well, "Damn, is she gonna just stop?" That, that's the boring part. That's boring. Yeah. Shut yeah. it out. Get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the piece that that Rachel's referring to is Elmore Leonard's Ten Rules for Writing. Uh, it is widely available online. Um, it was uh, printed in the New York Times. Uh -huh. I want to say right. So if you Google New York Times and Elmore Leonard's Ten Rules for Writing, you will find it, and it is brilliant. Um, lots of people don't prescribe to it, but it's completely worthwhile to be yeah. able to just look at it and see what he says. Also, Stephen King's. Uh -huh. Oh, my God, um, Stephen King. Uh, on, writing. on writing. On writing, that's right. Yeah. And then Elizabeth George, who is a, a wonderful mystery writer, also has yeah. a book about writing out, and they're, they're very, very good tips in that book. Um, for me, you know, I, I used to say things like, I like to make the writer, the, the reader work a little bit, and that's just mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also not 100% true in my case. Um, what I meant by that is that my, my background as a journalist and as a copywriter forces me to be very, very brief. Um, I used to write for the J. Peterman catalog, which mm. is, have you guys seen Seinfeld? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was Elaine before Elaine was Elaine. <laughs> um, and uh, and she, wrote, she wrote catalog copy for this like really floofy catalog that was like, it refused to use pictures, it, ref it used watercolors for a long time. Um, and it was all about like people who lived on tobacco plantations and wore caftans, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Okay, so you know, martinis at, at 3 p.m. type person, right? Okay. Um, actually, it would be gin and tonic, in fact, because you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so we were given a very, very short amount of space in order to convey a, an incredibly vivid picture. Um, and then I was also a journalist um, in magazine world for, for some time, and I also worked for newspapers. And in, in that case as well, and one of your characters is a, is a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, and you can listen to her. The, the way that she talks, it's much more succinct yes. than, than the other characters in your, in your books are. Um, and I think that's so interesting because that training has worked its way into my, into my, um, into my book, which is the reason it's so short. I'm going to say that. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as an excuse. Like <laughs> That's the reason my like book that. is so short. That's good. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think your background has a lot to do with it. Your chosen career, um, the other times that you're not actually writing books or or doing great stuff like this. Um, that's where you'll find slipping into your eventual style. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day. Yeah, for for me it's for me it's a lot of cutting. Uh, yeah. I um, am very verbose, and I like 60, 70 cent words as opposed to 25 cent words. And um, while I appreciate that, I'm a big David Foster Wallace fan. Oh my you know, so uh, <laughs> I I enjoy that. And I think it's totally okay to, to torture uh, your reader as much as humanly possible. Um, but I, I do understand that, again, uh, I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with another person and not just myself. So that's but been a struggle for me. I was going to say, you don't actually write like that. I mean, your, your book is extremely accessible. Yeah. Silent Thank you. Right. Thank you. Uh, that, that was a work of Herculean effort, too. <laughs> a lot of uh, room floor stuff. Well, that's... Uh, that book is interesting. It got published 20 years after I wrote it. So it was literally the very first thing I'd written aside from uh, photocopy zines mm -hmm. done okay. late at night about uh, hardcore bands and, and politics. So I was afraid to, to tackle something uh, as long as a novel because I had been primarily an essayist or a, a philosophical writer. And um, reading Naked Lunch by William Burroughs helped bring me out of that fear because you know it's essentially a, a giant pasta bowl of ideas that are tangentially linked but you know purposely there's no line through and that inspired me like oh so I can literally write the way I typically write mm -hmm. and at some juncture it will coalesce into a, a central piece I think I started out with about four or five unrelated short stories and after a few months just thought about what would connect those together, and that, mm -hmm. that's how that ended up uh, becoming a novella in the first place. Um, some of the other stuff I've done tends to skew more in the Pinchon or, or Wallace um, areas on purpose, um, because like you mentioned earlier, um, you know, first work, I mean, it's, it's kind of me as as a superhero yeah. with a you know slightly more interesting life than I had. <laughs> um, whereas later on, I, I really wanted to challenge myself, um, um, especially inspired by Thomas Pinchon, to, to write something that had a lot of characters and was really mm -hmm. plot-driven, um, less inner monologue if possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you when you, you were talking about um, your, your day job. I am a fundraising writer for, I was with City of Hope for eight years, and then um, now I'm with Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And as a fundraising writer for cancer, you have to cut out all the science in order right. to get rich people right. to give. You can't throw these words and say, now give us money, because they're like, we don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and so my job was, as an English American literature major, to take all those highbrow concepts in science and big words and make them easy to understand and, and you know, approachable. And, and I get that. I get the bad cell kills the good cells. And, you know, so knowing how to do that for my professional life, I've taken it into my novel writing and, you know, big concepts like forensics and DNA and uh, due process and all that stuff. You know, I will it all down and... I want to make it easy. I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King and Jackie Collins, who, you know, people, 
oh, they're so commercial and they're popcorn. But, you know, Stephen King gets a lot done with his work, making you understand what the town of Bangor, Maine is. You know, it, it's so easy to read that you've blown past 500 pa pages and it doesn't feel like it. And I always grew up saying when I write, <clears throat> I want to write like him. I want people to just consume it without knowing that I'm actually giving you a lot of information here that you're going to take home with you, whether it be, you know, police work or race relations. I want you to understand what I'm saying with the least resistance possible. But my day job helps me, you know, learn how, know how to do that. William, you were, you were saying uh, that editing is kind of how your style was created, at least for, for silence. That's what I thought you were going to say. So you were talking about torturing the reader. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, carry on. But does editing ever hinder, or, or like, do you feel like it, it takes away from your voice, or that there's this challenge like, oh, no, that's my, that's my thing. I do the thing. That's my voice. That's my style. I don't want to cut that out. It's funny. Uh, in thinking about this uh, discussion today, I had a, a, a flash to a movie where there's three writers having a discussion about editing. <laughs> one's supposed to be Allen Ginsberg and one's supposed to be Kerouac. And <laughs> Kerouac is passionately saying that editing is, is a crime and it <laughs> destroys your most pure thoughts. Editing in any way, shape, or form is just the most terrible thing you could do. And of course, Ginsberg is like, good Lord, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like I will re-edit a sentence eight million times. I, uh, I do a lot of editing, and that has changed my focal point when I'm actually writing. Um, I typically, when I work on a long project, I, I'll write on a typewriter, and very specifically because it's nearly impossible to actually do any real editing mm -hmm. in the moment. So I'm forced to kind of get everything out so that I can go back later and sift through it. Um, if I'm on a laptop, I will literally re-edit a paragraph over and over again and, and never get and to the second paragraph. Yeah, I could definitely have said that better and will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so editing uh, is a hindrance uh, for me when it comes to laying down the foundation of everything. I've always been more of a you know, just get it all out, sort of a writer. So yeah. for me, it's it's really important whenever I, whenever I sort out, you know, the direction I'm kind of want to go in or or what it is I'm trying to get across with something, I will go as hard as I can for as long as I can before mm -hmm. I pick up, you know, the um, uh, red pen, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I, I really enjoy that too. Um, I think that. I think that if I if I ever committed to just putting things out on first draft, you know, you really miss out on a lot of opportunities. Um, reading out loud is excellent, you know, having other people read it. And, um, you know, I'm also a big proponent of being deeply involved in, a, in someone else's book while I'm writing as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you take that break and you read someone else's thoughts and their ideas and, and how they put them together. And I can't tell you, there's been a million times where I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I was trying to do in that moment. And it kind of, I, I missed it, you mm -hmm. know, because I was worrying, worrying about that, uh, that torture that I was uh, <laughs> meeting out to the kids. I, I, I'm with you. I, I write longhand on legal pads. So, nice. but I do that because I like writing in the margins. But I absolutely hate first drafts. 
I hate coming up with the idea. I love, I absolutely love editing because that's when I actually know what my story is about. And plus, I get to use, you know, highlighters and stuff. I like highlighters. <laughs> highlighters are awesome. And right. I discovered, there's this um, woman, her name is Margie Lawson, and she's come up with this editing system that incorporates, you know, using different highlighters, green for, for uh, description, blue for... Uh, dialogue, red for verbs and all this. And if you don't have all this on your page, then you need to go back and add, right? So I really get excited with that kind of, it's like I get to write and use highlighters. This is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 my favorite draft, I would say, would be the third draft because the first draft, you just keep writing. Do not stop. Don't turn back. Just put it all on the page. Second draft is hard because you're like, oh, this is crap and no one's going to read this. Third draft is like, okay, there is actually something here, and I know basically kind of how it's going to end, and I'm comfortable with where things are, and now I get to have fun. This is where it becomes art, you know? It's, it's, I, 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 like, I like editing. Yeah, I could never give anything first draft. I would, I would stop writing if it was required to just hand me your first draft. I'd never do it again. That's fascinating. I'm, a, I'm an inveterate outliner. Um, I used I didn't yeah. used to be. I used yeah. to be the person who would, you know, blah, first mm -hmm. draft. Um, but now I outline all of my scenes in longhand, um, mm -hmm. and then I write from from those scenes. And I love the first draft. I love it to pieces. Yes, two reasons. One, I know it's going to be absolute crap, so the bar is really, really low. <laughs> there's no reason for me to fret over the first draft. Um, and two, um, I like it because there is an immense sense of relief, uh -huh. where the outline is is there, right? Mm -hmm. And I, you can't ever really fail with an outline because when you do get stuck, you're just like, oh right, I have this backstop. You know, I can I can go back to the outline and now I can remember again what what this character was doing here or why she was here in the first place. Um, and that's been a real relief to me. I, I love the outline for that reason, and that's also why I love the first draft because that's where I can kind of like get out all of the fancy language and the the tinkering and the what happens if this goes here that kind of thing. Um, the second draft for me is a little bit more painful. Mm -hmm. um, but I also find that's where the voice crystallizes. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's where I find um, that I really start to get to know the character. And then that's also where I pass it off to beta readers after the second draft. Second draft. Yeah, mm. I pass it off to the second draft. Mostly because I can't see it anymore. But I yeah. think that's also because in the second draft I, I am pretty deeply into the character's head and I need some space from him or her. You know, I can't, I can't really deal with the character anymore right now. I know him or her too well to be able to have any kind of objective viewpoint on whether or not he or she is doing the right thing for the story. Hmm. So I have to pass it off to somebody else. I'm at fourth, fourth draft or fifth draft. Wow. And I'm like, okay, okay, now this is okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's, you're really, really good to your readers. <laughs> That's great, cool. I mean, I guess theoretically, like since, since I've been through the outline and then the yeah. first draft, you could like theoretically call the second draft. I like outline because you get to buy, I use the index cards, which is another She's just, I think she's really, she's in this for the stuff, you guys. Right. She's in this yeah. for the index cards, the legal pads, and the outliners. I mean, I've been married for 20 years, right? So my <laughs> husband knows me, and for my 20th, our 20th anniversary, he got me a weekend stay at the Langham for right away, so nice. I could just write all by myself. Oh, nice. Great. Nice. And for Valentine's Day, he gets me like, Office Depot cards, <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, don't get me rolls, just get me staples. I want uh -huh, a staples exactly. card for $100? That's awesome. That's a lot. That's a lot of post-it notes. Ways, That's a yeah. lot of post-its. The, the colored ones. Oh, yeah. The With the patterns ones. on them? Have yeah. you encountered those uh -huh. yet? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Now, talking about uh, getting it to beta readers or, or an editor, um, 
how much does that change your voice, your tone? How, do, how much does that affect your style? Do you ever feel stifled by other people or is it more freeing? My first reader is my husband, and he doesn't even read. I read to him. This is my read aloud. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. And with the series, he's the one who tells me, you're not going dark enough. Because mm -hmm. oh, the dark, it, I write mur about murder and bad things, and it scares me. It mm -hmm. really does scare me. And so I'll kind of dip my toe in it, maybe stand a few feet in it, but I won't go all the way there until he says, you need to go further and further and further. So he, he helped shape the voice. Because I think he knows my, the voice more than right. I do. Yeah. I'm kind of scared of it in some ways. So, yeah, he is the only one really who has a lot of um, say in what I write. My editor and my agent, they just kind of go with it. But it's because he's already kind of pulled me along to go there. Is he your only beta reader? Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I have a community of... Um, I have four or five beta readers that we all, we all kind of trade our novels around. Um, and it's, it's really useful. I, I'm a little bit wary of this because there will come a time when we know each other too well mm -hmm. and we know each other's works too well and that will be not a good thing because then it'll be like, well, I know what she was trying to say so I'll just let it slip, right? Yeah. It, won't be, it won't be as accurate. Um, but we've now read, each read two of each other's works and we're, we're in a good place. Um, for me, in terms of voice, the beta reader doesn't so much tinker with that. Uh, he or she were tinker with the whole, like, you are not being mean enough to this character. Hmm. This character needs to suffer. Um, you know, where's the next plot point? Uh, that type of thing. You know, so you guys have heard the phrase, kill your darling, darlings, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that if, you, uh, if you're not being mean <coughs> enough to your characters, uh, or if you have extraneous characters that are just floating around because you like them, like you met them on the subway one day and you <laughs> thought they were really cool because you want to write about them. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience or anything like that. <laughs> this this guy, this guy has. I told you about this yeah. guy. He's. Can I can I the can I tell again? Red Sox. Yeah. We're talking about the Red Sox. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. So there's a guy on the subway train who was wearing a really buttoned-up suit and um, it was late at night and he crossed his legs and he was wearing red socks. And I met him in like freaking '97. And I am still trying to work him into a character. And I work him into every single novel. And do you know what? Nobody likes him. There's no reason for him to be there. It is awful. So I've had to kill that darling off like eight times. And I'm not happy with it. It's bad. Um, so that's what, for me, that's what beta readers are more good for than anything else. I still don't have a place for him. <laughs> no. Really sad. You know what I would well, do? Well, I may find him in human. Yeah, no. I was going to say, I, you should, from now on, there should always be one character wearing red socks. And that's where you leave it's like it. The red that, yeah, that, that's your reference he doesn't have to be in there he's just referenced yeah oh that's great that's great you can have him there Rachel. You go. We can I'll, I'll you thank you <laughs> we're doing it right now you guys look at this the creative process is like working here it's good well my husband always dares me he gives me a random thing one time he's like soupy sales <laughs> and i worked soupy sales i think it was into my first book it was just a random he'll just give me like a gauntlet that's and, great yeah. That's, yeah oh my gosh i love it terrific soupy sales that's Random. Yeah. That's random. <laughs> and challenging. Wow. That's random. That's a good one. See, now we're going to see Soupy Sales. Soupy Sales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, how about, because um, you've all worked with other writers, how about helping other people find their voice or their style? What are some techniques or suggestions you would have? I mean, I, I think of like a voice is kind of like a, it's kind of inherent in all of us, yeah. but a lot of times we struggle in getting it onto the page. So what are some suggestions to 
other writers to help them develop? Uh, since we're talking about beta readers and, and drafts, um, when, as an editor, when I'm, work, when I'm paired with someone, it's not just a one-off thing, but when I'm paired with someone to work on something like a novel or a novella, I prefer to read earlier drafts. Um, very specifically because there are times that the honesty of their true voice is there mm -hmm. before they decide to cut it out. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the writers I worked with in conjunction with Black Hill Press in 1888, um, their notion of what they should be doing differed so greatly from what was really kind of unique and uh, special about the way they looked at things. Um, and catching those tidbits before they hit the cutting room floor, like obviously a great deal of them are deserve to be on the floor, and you want to get rid of them. But sometimes, it, you know, it's a good insight. You know, like you were saying, some of your readers end up knowing you too well. Uh, a lot of times, when I work with someone uh, on a publication, I don't know them at all, mm -hmm. aside from a few, you know, uh, terse emails and this is what we're going to do, and this is our timeline, all that good stuff. And e even in conversation, people are you know, guarded as a, as a default. So reading that first or second draft, you know, you can see that paragraph where they just wandered off into this thing that, that is necessarily different than everything else. And I love seeing that because sometimes it's like, man, that was it right yeah. there. Yeah. Like if all of this could kind of feel like that, you'd really have something here. This is run of the mill and, you know, people like it because yeah. it just is what it is. But this, this is what makes you interesting. So um, in, my, in my work as a writing coach and editor, I will employ the whole, read this out loud, see if it rings true to you. Does it sound like you? That kind of thing. Um, but I also will do something that, that's maybe a little weird. I will make them write down their, their worst, worst memory, the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Um, and then I'll have them put it away in an envelope for a little bit, and then we'll come back to it about halfway through the, the, the writing coaching process. Um, and it's kind of strange because I do find that, that as, we are, as we're working our way through the writing coaching process, the end result of which is to help you find your voice um, or the story you want to tell, mm. uh, typically that horrible incident that they have to go back to is pretty true to what their voice sounds like. It's a very strange dovetailing. I mean, it kind of like, you know, just goes right in. And the idea is to tap into the sort of like the, the, the deepest emotion that you have, right? Joy and fear, right, and, and feeling like you know a little something, those three things are really, really powerful emotions. So if you can tap into that early on um, and get them to use that to greater good, then, then that's, that's an okay thing. I mean, not that I like to make people relive terrible things, but it's a really effective way of getting to somebody's voice right away. Um, and also, once they've written down that terrible, terrible thing that happened to them that made them cry, um, you've kind of already hurdle, you know, the worst, the worst part of your experience together. So it's a, it's a really nice way to kind of get that out of the way and it allows them to, to remember what it was like to feel true to one thing or another. So mm -hmm. it's highly effective. I, 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 I like that because I think that's what a lot of good writing is. It's writing about those bad things. Mm -hmm. It may not be like the most awful thing, but it's certainly something that you care about. And I know when I'm writing and talking to people, it's like, well, what do you care about? Yeah. What can take you 80,000 words you know, into 400 pages that, that you want to share with someone? You have to care. And for you know, whenever someone asks me about voice, 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 it's like, well, first, 
you have to read. Yeah. Read those people who just really speak to you, where you want to go on the street and say, read this book, because it's that good. Yeah. You know, and then find those things that you do care about, because your voice will come out of those, those bad things Absolutely. or very, very happy things. And care about, you know, what it is that you're writing. Don't write for trend. Write about something that may not get an editor the very first time but it's true to you, it's, it's honest, and it's, and it's real, and then try out points of view. Yeah. I always write first person, because that's just a natural thing for me. Mm -hmm. it, it, it feels okay for me, it feels honest for me. It doesn't have to be third person or second person, it doesn't have to, you know, it, it, whatever makes you feel comfortable, you should do, because you're gonna be living in this skin, like, forever, yeah. so find your place, stay in your lane, you know, go out of it right, you know, whenever you can, but find what is true to you and hone that, make it better, yeah. accept it. We, in this day and era, age, we love hacks. You know, we love to talk about like lifestyle hacks, <laughs> things that we can do to make our lives easier. Um, probably the best hack that I found towards finding your voice is writing letters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, yeah, do you guys still write letters? I write letters all the time. I it's write letters getting written back is the difficult part. I've written <laughs> hundreds of letters. Oh, I'll write to you. We'll thank write you. you. Let's do we'll this. Yeah. You. It'll be good. Well, yeah, you it'll get be an good. email or a phone call like, yeah. man, your letter was great. <laughs> you're missing the point, guy. Yeah. Okay. Reciprocal. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I was thinking while you're you're saying that you should take the red sock character and write it out and put it in the envelope. And the, <laughs> because it's the most traumatic thing to ever happen well, to me. You get it out of your 1997, system. Yeah. you guys. That's, These, that's a long been following time. Following you around for a long time. This yeah. is like it's like we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Red Sox guy. <laughs> <laughs> Will somebody just email me next year and be like, "Did you do something with him yet?" Because it's something. time. It's time. But it, I mean, well, not, not short to story publication. Should, yeah. <laughs> he, he's a, he was like an architect or something. No, too, right? he was like, a cartographer. Cartographer. That's right. He yeah. made maps for a living. How cool is that? And yes, yes, I got up and I asked him what he did for a living because I was so taken by these red socks. Hmm? It's just so bad, so bad. I recommend this to nobody, by the way. Don't, was it don't the do holiday this. season? No, it was freaking June. Nice. Like, I, mean, I know this because he was wearing this has, lovely linen suit. Has you know, a story. So, so he has oh, yeah. a story somewhere. I know. I should just make something up for him, honestly. Yeah, write his tragic story about how that morning he couldn't find any other pair of socks. <laughs> and the red socks were. Or there. It, it, that his most traumatic <laughs> event happened in the Red Sox, and he hasn't taken them off in 25 years. Oh, my gosh. This is so good. There, there should be an 1888 collection about this his guy. His man gave him the socks. Today is the day she died, so he's honoring her, and now this crazy Sox. woman is coming over to me asking about what Making I do for a living. Trying this to is, make this me stuff in an envelope. This is officially the best panel yeah. I've ever been on in my life, you guys. Honestly. Honestly. Gosh, I wish, I wish that guy were around now. <laughs> if only he knew what had become of himself. Uh, I, I well, and that's the other thing. I mean, writers, we're vampires, right? I mean, we're looking mm. at everything and everybody and trying to fit them into our, our literary worlds. And I like going places because folks are weird. Oh, yeah. And wonderful and strange and crazy. It's just wonderful. Absolutely. We have, the, we have the best life on the planet, honestly. Yeah. Writers, you guys, I mean, if, if, if people here are, are thinking about making Korean writing or making inroads, you should do it. Because I just, there's no other, there's no other life yeah. like this. Well, I mean, here's the thing. We all do it anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, when we observe somebody, when we interact with somebody, we write a story in our head about what we thought of them or what mm -hmm. we think they do with themselves. We just take it the extra... Yeah anal retentive step and yeah. put the words down on the paper yeah. and then, you know, obviously compulsively edit it until it's going to sound, you know, good <laughs> to somebody else. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, LA is a great town for that. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, we were talking about it earlier. My dad's ex-military, so I've lived in a lot of places, and um, LA is somewhere that I've come back to four times now. Oh wow! And it's just, um, it's incredibly it's difficult to beat um, what rises to the surface when you have that many humans in, you know, in a way too small footprint. Uh -huh. Obviously, New York is a lot of fun for the same reason. It's um, there's a tension there that builds stories and creates situations that are more interesting. Um, you know, obviously, if you don't see another human being for four or five days in a row, you get so much more internalized. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you're um, Nietzsche or, or Kafka, that works perfectly, <laughs> you know. You, you want to stay internalized, any external anything is going to kind of mess up your process. But, you know, when you're writing stories about other people, I mean, really the best practice is to be around other people. Yeah. That's also where you get a lot of your authenticity, too. Um, as we were discussing earlier with voice, uh, especially with dialogue, if it all sounds like you're saying it, it's not a very interesting book. Right. Mm. You know, if, if you Every can't... Every character sounds the same. Yeah. 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 The same. yeah, this is 15 versions of me. Yeah. Well, I know that you think you're impressive, but <laughs> I was not that impressed. One, one would have been all right. Yeah. <laughs> Can we actually, you, you brought up a really good point. We've been talking about voice and, and authenticity and all that. And I think sense of place can have its own voice and also loan a specific voice to, to any work, right? I mean, your Los Angeles, you know, detective reeks of Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's everything. It's in her diction and it's, it's in the way that she interacts with people and in the way that she prefers to be alone at very specific times when the poop has hit the fan. Sorry, I'm looking for children. When the poop has hit the fan. And it's just, you know, it's, it's so important to have that. Um, your character moves from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And the voice in Los Angeles is very different from the voice in Las Vegas, right? My kind of character goes to three different places. And the same thing, like every different place, there's a different tonality to the character as they go. So it's really important not to overlook setting when you're thinking about, about voice and about characters. Where your character lives or where she wants to go or wants to spend her time is going to be really critical in terms of how she talks and how she decides to convey the feelings that she's that she's experiencing. So, or he. Yeah. And, and setting, in my, with the writers that I love, um, it is a character. You know, yeah. uh, Dublin for Joyce. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Dublin's a character. It's, it's not. It, it's 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 a higher priority than uh, than setting even. Um, I just um, did a blurb for a friend's novel that's coming out, <clears throat> and he wrote about uh, Atlanta in the early 90s. Oh, cool. And that was one of the <laughs> strongest parts about it was you just felt it. And I, I've done a lot of time down in the South, so I'm familiar with it, but I mean, it, in reading it, I could tell that, you know, if you were from Maine and had never seen anything past the Mason-Dixon, you would, I'm feeling that. I, I feel yeah. the humidity and the congestion. and um, So d I, I appreciate that. A, a great deal uh, it has a lot to do for me the excitement I had when I oh, want to be a writer you know part of that was reading um, mid-century expat literature okay. you know everyone who had said hey this is cool I was born here and I know all these people so let's go do something totally different okay. like that was always a, a big drive for me and, and the hope that you know, I could, on some level, either personally or, or career-wise, be able to do that sort of thing and, yeah. you know, switch it up. Um, and, of course, that that ends up um, infiltrating your writing as well. You know, you're not going to write 
five novels that are all the same. Right. You know, you're going to meet different people and, and you know, different levels of humidity since we were talking about Georgia. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and that's the wonderful thing for me about uh, a series. It's because I have, yes, this one character, but she hasn't lived all of life yet. And for the fourth one that I just turned in to my editor, she's dealing with, um, it's basically this mega church and people are dying in the mega church, right? And we never talked about religion, Lou and I, until this book. So now I'm getting to figure out what she would say about Jesus, you know? Um, and I, I didn't know. And it's like, oh, so you feel that way. That's interesting. And it's weird because uh, your character, yeah, you're yeah. creating this. I'm creating it, but she's creating yeah. it. And it's all very strange and it's only, discovery. yeah, it's discovery. But you have to be open to that. And you'd have, you have to do a lot of eavesdropping. I find myself eavesdropping on conversations of regular people, just picking up speech patterns and how people say some words wrong and no one corrects them on that. But it's, you know, it's, it's a weird thing populating your, your novel with humans because we're wonderfully fallible. It yeah. makes us interesting. Well, and that's, that ends up being the challenge, uh, not the challenge, probably ultimately the goal is capturing that um, because you're, you're going to necessarily be very idealistic you know, and someone's going to be smart mm -hmm. and have something interesting to say, otherwise you wouldn't be writing about them. Um, philosophical writers, uh, Camus and Sartre, are excellent mm -hmm. examples of, of people who, who wrote books that were filled with the most brilliant humans you've ever met. You know, it's like reading a book where everyone's just gorgeous, and you're like, yeah, ah, I don't care about these it's people. Not relatable. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tantalizing for about 10, 15 pages, and it, mm -hmm. it gets incredibly boring. Um, you know, so that, that fallibility, for me, ties in a lot, you know, with the honesty as well. You know, if I'm just trying to kind of regurgitate my ideal scenarios, you know, into 400 pages, that will be interesting up to a certain extent, you know, and then it's just in incredibly one-dimensional. Um, it's, it's how people react to you know, pain and joy and their relatives. Yeah. Not yeah, letting them off relatives. the phone, yeah. <laughs> you know that, you know that makes the reader smile and makes you say, "Oh God, like that book meant something to me." Well, and and that's the beauty of, beauty of diverse literature too, because you know, especially your book. I mean, everybody kind of has that mom character because everyone has a mom and everyone <laughs> rolls their eyes at their moms. But you know, there's this collective when reading your book. It's like, oh my lord, will this woman go away? Will she just let her be? Oh, you know. Push her in front of a train, you know, do something. <laughs> but I, I, I like visiting other people's lives, right. people who don't look like me or have had my experience. And, you know, I like people coming into my world and seeing that things aren't so easy. And, you know, it's, and I, I've said this before, but, you know, especially with Stephen King, I was a little black girl in South Central Los Angeles mm -hmm. wanting to meet these kids in Bangor, Maine, because there's this clown living in the sewer. Mm -hmm. All kids are scared of clowns. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, there is no, there is no division when it comes to some literature. Yeah. It should be that there are these shared experiences that make us angry and sad and and fearful yeah. of clowns in sewers with eyes like dimes. You know, I like remember that kind of thing yeah. because he was writing for for all of us, not just for people in Bangor, Maine. Right. Right. Yeah, I think this is um, this is one of the really weird dichotomies of literature is that we really only read to get to know somebody else, mm -hmm. but we also 
read to find solidarity. Um, and that's very strange because these two things kind of exist together, right? I mean, yes, you, you want to get to know somebody like Lou and somebody like Dean, but you also are interested to find out what you have in common with them, mm -hmm. you know? And when you get to that point, it's a little bit like when the four-part harmony comes together in any boy band, right? Mm -hmm. ah, and you're like, <laughs> bing! And yeah. you're like, somebody understands me! Yeah. You know, that's, that's an amazing feeling. To turn the page and find that happening is such a lovely moment. Yeah. And it happens so often in literature, which is the other reason that what we do is such a great profession, you know, because you get to make somebody feel like that every time they open your book. And that's truly extraordinary. It's a really lovely thing. This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How, The Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.